Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People since 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, The Second World War, Part 3. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak and turn to the slide, Grand Strategy. Hitler's invasion of the Soviet Union and the declaration of war in the United States led to the creation of the Grand Alliance between the Soviet Union, the U.S., and Great Britain. They are usually called the Allies, but we have to note that this is a marriage of convenience, as no one trusted the Soviets. Stalin begged the United States and Great Britain to open a second front in Europe by crossing the English Channel and retaking France. This would force the Germans to fight a two-front war and would take pressure off the Soviets, who were doing almost all of the fighting against the Germans in Europe. In December 1941, FDR and Churchill, as well as their principals, met in Washington, D.C. and agreed on a Europe-first approach. This meant that they needed to defeat Germany first and then worry about Japan. They also agreed that an invasion of France would have to wait until Allied forces were stronger. So instead, in 1942, the Americans would attack the Germans and Italians in North Africa and relieve the British fighting there. While fighting raged in North Africa, FDR and Churchill met at Casablanca, Morocco in January 1943, and Stalin did not attend because he was busy with the German invasion. So FDR and Churchill agreed on two main things. First, the Allies would only accept the unconditional surrender of the Axis. Second, the invasion of France would be delayed, and the Allies would instead invade Sicily. Stalin was furious and accused the Western Allies of letting the Soviets bleed to death. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, North Africa, Sicily, and Italy. From January 1940 to May 1943, the British battled the Nazis in North Africa, eventually stopping their invasion of Egypt and pushing them back into Tunisia. The U.S. joined the fray in mid-1942, and eventually the German Field Marshal, Erwin Rommel, was defeated, and the U.S. prepared for the next move. In July 1943, the Allies invaded Sicily, and Italian forces quickly crumbled, often surrendering en masse. The American 7th Army, under the command of George Patton, raced against the British 8th Army, led by Bernard Montgomery, a.k.a. Monty. While en route, Patton visited a hospital and slapped a soldier who was suffering from a nervous disorder. Patton was reprimanded and thus missed the subsequent invasion of Italy. On September 3, 1943, Italian forces surrendered, but German forces remained committed to holding the Axis line in Italy. On September 8, the Allies invaded Italy, and while fighting raged, the Italian king fired Mussolini and placed him under arrest. A few days later, on September 12, German gliders rescued him and took him to northern Italy where he was put in charge of a puppet fascist state. Over the next 16 months, Allied forces slowly and bloodily made their way up the boot. The German defense, which was aided by swollen rivers and steep mountains, was stiff, and German forces in Italy would not fall until April 1945. As a result, Allied forces were bloodied, but fought on valiantly. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Allied Bombing Campaign. Now, the memory of the war is that the greatest American generation brought freedom to the world, 
but the way we did it was actually more brutal than we like to remember. After the Blitz, the RAF wanted vengeance, and they bombed German cities to cause casualties and lower civilian morale. When U.S. forces joined the war, they participated in the bombing of Germany's industry. However, there was a substantial problem, the high casualties of Allied bomber crews. There was a 10-15% to 15 casualty rate on every single mission, as the Luftwaffe could shoot down many Allied planes as they lingered over German territory. This means that by 1943, 60% of RAF crews do not survive their tours. So as you can see, this is costly and ineffective. And so the Allies make a tactical shift. The RAF turns to night bombing, while the United States continued to bomb during daylight. As I said before, the US goal was to destroy industry, while the UK wanted to hit morale and workers. The United States did attempt to be more careful in their bombing, but civilian casualties piled up because of the ineffective technology at the time. However, with better technology and more escorts, like the Tuskegee Airmen, Allied bomber crews had an improved casualty rate. Also, the weaponry became more destructive. From July to August 1943, the RAF and American bombers dropped incendiary and phosphorus bombs on Hamburg, Germany. This created a massive fireball in which temperatures reached over 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. Hundreds of Germans were burned by phosphorus, which clung to whatever surface it landed on and burned as long as there was oxygen around. Nine square miles of the city was burned. 60,000 Germans were killed, and 750,000 Germans were left homeless. Now, Hamburg had been an important port and war industry center, but the Allies then showed that they were just as willing to hit civilian targets when they bombed Dresden, Germany. This city had no military value, and yet it was extensively bombed. This resulted in the death of 50,000 Germans and over 1 million people homeless. Now, the extent to which this bombing actually achieved their objectives is still debated to this day, and Patton himself in this era described this as barbaric behavior. Many historians believe that this bombing was actually largely ineffective, despite the fact that this aerial bombing was the major way in which the United States waged war against Germany proper for much of the conflict. So I ask you, was this just? Was it moral on the part of the Allies to kill civilians in order to bring the war to a quick termination? While you think about that, let me ask you another question. Why is this important to Americans today? That's right, because we Americans need to have a conversation about our tactics, about our strategies and goals, and if the ends justify the means. Can we just bomb civilians without any moral consideration, as has been happening for the last 20 years as a result of the global war on terror. I'll leave you to decide, but in my opinion, we should probably tone it down a bit. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Planning D-Day. From November 28th to December 1st, the Big Three, meaning Stalin, FDR, and Churchill, met at the Soviet embassy in Tehran, Iran. Stalin had the embassy bugged before the meeting, which shows his paranoia as well as the flimsiness of the Grand Alliance. Despite Churchill's continued desire to focus on Italy, the Big Three agreed that the cross-channel invasion of France, codenamed Operation Overlord, 
would finally take place in spring 1944. FDR decided to appoint General Dwight D. Eisenhower, a.k.a. Ike, to the supreme commander of Operation Overlord. Many, including Churchill and Stalin, thought the U.S. Chief of Staff, General George C. Marshall, was a better choice. But FDR valued Marshall's role as Chief of Staff, and Ike had shown a key ability to get along with the British-American officers, including prima donnas like Monty and Patton. Planning for Overlord was the top priority for the Western Allies going forward. Supplies, transports, and nearly 3 million troops were massed in Great Britain. The attack had been scheduled to take place on June 5th, so the question became, where would they cross the English Channel? The Germans had expected them to cross an attack at the Pas de Calais, which was only 20 miles from Great Britain. Consequently, German defenses there were far more formidable. Instead, the Allies chose to land in Normandy. Measures were then taken to confuse the Germans as to where they would land in France. In fact, Operation Bodyguard was an elaborate plan to, quote, induce the enemy to make faulty strategic dispositions in relation to operations by the United Nations against Germany, end quote. The Allies made the Germans think that the invasion could come from the Mediterranean, the Balkans, or even invade Norway first with the Soviets. Most of the efforts, as I said before, concentrated on making the Germans think that the Allies would cross at the Pas de Calais. Then, the Allies gave the appearance of a massive troop buildup of the fictitious 1st U.S. Army, led by General Patton, who was still in trouble for slapping a soldier. In southern England, the Allies constructed a dummy headquarters, broadcast endless hours of false radio transmissions, planted fake wedding notices of U.S. soldiers in British newspapers, and built fake supply depots. They deceived aerial reconnaissance of the area with an armada of decoy landing craft and inflatable rubber tanks. They even used the body of a dead soldier planted with fake plans on them to confuse the Germans as to where they would land. This plan continued even after D-Day, and was so successful that Germany did not move reinforcements from the Pont de Calais until seven weeks after the invasion occurred, which allowed the Allies to obtain a foothold in northern France. This showcases the masterful use of misinformation and misdirection in war. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Invasion of France. Meanwhile, in a series of brutal engagements on the Eastern Front, the Soviet Red Army had been steadily pushing the Germans westward. As the Soviets marched through the Western Soviet Union, they discovered that their villages had been ravaged by the Germans and even saw signs of the Holocaust. In January, the Red Army reached the pre-war eastern border of Poland. In that same month, the siege of Leningrad was finally lifted after over 900 days. Back on the Western Front, the invasion of France was set for June 5th, but bad weather delayed it by a day. Thus, on June 6, 1944, D-Day occurred for Operation Overlord. Ike himself did not know if the invasion would be successful, so he penned a victory and an apology note. The night before D-Day occurred, thousands of paratroopers were dropped behind German lines to disrupt and sow confusion. Please watch the clip on the PowerPoint from the HBO series, Band of Brothers. Okay, so did you watch it? It's a fantastic miniseries. Well, on the morning of June 6th, some 4,600 Allied vessels crossed the channel 
including many amphibious Higgin boats. Allied troops, especially the Americans who landed at Omaha Beach, faced fierce German resistance. The first two waves of Americans at Omaha Beach were decimated, and Eisenhower even contemplated calling off the invasion. But the third wave managed to establish a beachhead and break the German defenses near the coast. Despite suffering horrible casualties, the Allies eventually captured the Normandy beaches. Please look at the clip from the opening scene of the movie Saving Private Ryan. Okay, so did you watch it? This is arguably the most accurate depiction of World War II combat in film. And I'll also note that since Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg worked on both films, they helped push for the creation of the World War II monument in Washington, D.C., which in itself is very impressive. By early July, one million Allied troops had landed in northern France. By August, Allied forces had liberated Paris after four years of German occupation. Leading the liberation of Paris were free French troops under Charles de Gaulle, the future president of France. The Allies then moved east across France and into Belgium and Luxembourg. But the Allies suffered a setback during Operation Market Garden, where paratroopers were dropped too far behind enemy lines and the German counteroffensive stopped the Allied push. By October 1944, the Allies had fought their way into western Germany, but were halted due to gas shortages. There, they waited for supplies to catch up, not expecting the Germans to mount much offensive action. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Late 1944. In November 1944, FDR was elected to an unprecedented fourth term as president. Meanwhile, on the Eastern Front, the Red Army had moved deep into Eastern Europe, taking Romania, Bulgaria, Yugoslavia, Slovakia, and Hungary. The problem is that many of these Soviet troops would remain in place after the war, as Stalin was obsessed with security after losing tens of millions of his subjects to the conflict. For the time being, however, the Germans were facing a nightmare scenario, a two-front war. So in a desperate move, Hitler ordered German troops and tanks to concentrate on the Western Front, which horrified many of his generals. 24 German divisions, including some transferred from the east, were massed in the dense Ardennes forest, the same forest where the French had been caught by surprise in 1940. Then in December, the Germans attacked and surprised the unprepared Western Allies along a 70-mile front in the Ardennes. In the ensuing days, the Germans created a 65-mile-deep, 45-mile-wide bulge in the Allied line, thus making this engagement called the Battle of the Bulge. During the offensive, the Nazis had surrounded the 101st Airborne at Bastogne, where they held off German attacks for weeks. When the German general asked for the American surrender, the commander sent a short reply, Nuts. The joke didn't translate well. In the end, the Allied relief force, led by George Patton, relieved the paratroopers, though to this day, they will insist they never needed to be rescued. Despite suffering heavy casualties, the Allies had eliminated the bulge by January 1945. Thus, Germany's last gamble had failed. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Early 1945. In January 1945, the Red Army launched a massive offensive across Poland, 
and by the end of the month, the Soviets were in eastern Germany, where the Red Army looted, pillaged, and raped the Germans for the next two years. By February, the Big Three met at Yalta on the Crimean Peninsula, which did belong to Ukraine, but has recently been annexed by Vladimir Putin. At this point, the Red Army was only 40 miles from Berlin, so Stalin negotiated from a position of strength. The Big Three agreed to the following. First, Germany and Berlin would be divided into zones of occupation. See the map for details. Second, captured Nazis would be tried as war criminals. Third, the Soviet Union would enter the Pacific War three months after German defeat. Fourth, free elections would eventually be held in Poland and other Eastern European countries, which the Red Army now occupied. But Stalin never intended to hold true to this. As he later told his foreign minister, quote, Do not worry, we can implement it in our own way later. The hotter of the matter is the correlation of forces. End quote. Again, Stalin was obsessed with maintaining security in Eastern Europe and preventing any capitalist invasion of his country. Please advance to the next slide entitled The Road to Victory. On February 21st, Western Allied troops reached the Rhine River. And by March, a nervous, vengeful Hitler ordered one of his associates to destroy everything in Germany that might be used to the Allies. When the associate argued that this would threaten the survival of the German people, Hitler responded, quote, If the war is to be lost, the nation will perish. There is no longer need to consider the basis of even the most primitive existence. On the contrary, it is better to destroy even that, and to destroy it ourselves. The nation has proved itself weak, and the future belongs to the stronger eastern nation. Besides, those who remain after the battle are of little value, for the good have all fallen. End quote. On April 12th, FDR died, succumbing to a long illness and old age, and the inexperienced Vice President Harry Truman now became president, which would have massive consequences for the future. By April 16th, the Red Army launched a final offensive against Berlin and began pounding the city into submission. Young German boys and old men lined the streets in defense, and tens of thousands perished. Then, on April 25th, delegates from 50 countries gathered in San Francisco to write the charter for the new United Nations. This was a collective security organization, not a military alliance. In the UN, would have five nations that would have permanent seats on the Security Council, as well as veto power. And these nations were the United States, Great Britain, France, the Soviet Union, and Nationalist China. The U.S. Senate later voted 89-2 in favor of joining, which shows how much the Americans had learned since their rejection of the League of Nations. By April 28th, Mussolini and his girlfriend had been caught trying to escape to Switzerland, and he was shot by Italians and strung up in Milan. The next day, Hitler married his longtime mistress, Ava Brown, and on the 30th, the two committed suicide together. By May 7th, the Germans finally surrendered, and the next day, Victory in Europe Day, VE Day, was proclaimed. But the victory was bitter in many ways. Untold death and destruction in war is one thing, 
but what the Allies found shook even the hardest combat veteran to his core. For years, Jewish groups had told everyone that Hitler was waging a war against Jews and other undesirables, but they didn't listen. One, because it seemed ludicrous, and two, because of the long-standing anti-Semitism in the era. But what these veterans found was horrific, as the Germans and their allies had perpetrated the Holocaust, the systematic, state-sponsored murder of six million Jews and five million other peoples that included Slavs, Poles, Roma, Russians, homosexuals, lesbians, the disabled, mentally ill, and a host of other people considered to be undesirable or unfit. But that is a story for its own lecture. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Pacific War. Fighting in the Pacific was mostly between the United States and Japan. The U.S. goal was to stop Japanese expansion and head towards the island and retake some other islands that the Japanese had conquered in what has been called an island-hopping campaign. This included brutal combat on sparsely populated islands with dense jungles and rugged terrain and swamps. Fanatical Japanese fighting inspired intense American hatred and racism, and Americans depicted the Japanese as bloodthirsty and subhuman, quote, Japs. This theater also included many naval engagements, in which opposing ships often did not see one another, so aircraft carriers and airplanes were crucial. But remember, by May 1942, the Japanese controlled most of Southeast Asia and the South Pacific. The Japanese still wanted to destroy the U.S. Pacific Fleet. In other words, finish the job they had started at Pearl Harbor. The plan was to attack Midway and draw out the U.S. fleet. But unfortunately for the Japanese, U.S. cryptoanalysts had cracked their naval code. Thus, the commander of the Pacific Fleet, Admiral Chester Nimitz, knew the Japanese plan. In June 1942, the Battle of Midway raged, and Japanese planes attacked Midway and destroyed 17 U.S. planes and one aircraft carrier. But the U.S. sank four Japanese carriers and destroyed 250 planes. Midway is thus the major turning point of the Pacific War. The Japanese never recovered from this, and hereafter remained mostly on the defensive. By August, 11,000 U.S. Marines landed on Guadalcanal and the Solomon Islands. Over the next six months, the Japanese and Americans fought numerous battles, both on the island and at sea. By early February 1943, the U.S. had finally gained control of the island, and the Japanese suffered 20,000 casualties compared to the United States' 1,700. This type of casualty disparity was typical for the Pacific War. Then, in April, U.S. Joint Chiefs decided that the Americans would attack towards Japan in a two-pronged offensive. The Army, led by MacArthur, would head north out of the Southwest Pacific, meaning New Guinea, and the Navy, led by Nimitz, would approach Japan from the Central Pacific, forcing them to divide their forces. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Pacific War, 1944. In June 1944, only nine days after D-Day in Europe, U.S. Marines hit the beaches of Saipan and the Marianas Islands. Over the next three weeks, they fought their way northward and faced incredibly fierce Japanese resistance. 3,500 Americans died, 
while 30,000 Japanese were killed. When U.S. troops reached the northern part of the island, 2,000 Japanese civilians committed suicide rather than surrender to the Americans. The Marianas were deemed crucial because U.S. B-29 Super Fortress bombers could take off from there and bomb the Japanese home islands. Then in October, the U.S. Army forces landed at Leyte, an island in the Philippines, and initially faced little Japanese resistance. As MacArthur waded ashore, he announced on the radio, People of the Philippines, I have returned. Rally to me. A few days later, the U.S. and Japanese navies fought what may be the largest naval engagement in world history in the three-day Battle of Leyte Gulf. It was devastating for the Japanese, who lost four carriers, three battleships, 21 other ships, and 500 planes. But near the end of the battle, the Japanese used a new tactic, kamikaze, or suicide pilots. And this is evidence of Japanese desperation at this point in the war. And just as in a point of interest, kamikaze means divine wind in Japanese, and is derived from when storms destroyed a great Mongol invasion force in the 13th century. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Early 1945. In February 1945, U.S. troops reached Manila, Philippines, where they faced heavy Japanese resistance. For the next month, intense fighting ensued in the streets, and much of the city was destroyed, and nearly 100,000 civilians were killed. Also in February, U.S. forces landed on Iwo Jima, which is a volcanic island just north of the Marianas. It was only 660 miles from Tokyo, so it was considered a strategic location for bombing runs, particularly for damaged planes that could not make it all the way back to the Marianas. American troops hit the beach and sank ankle-deep into volcanic ash. 21,000 Japanese troops were well entrenched in the caves and concrete bunkers connected by tunnels. The fighting was horrific, as the fanatical Japanese resistance included suicide charges and human booby traps. After 25 days of intense fighting, U.S. troops secured the island, but at the cost of 6,000 American dead and 17,000 wounded, while almost every single Japanese soldier perished in the fighting. After the Americans had taken Mount Suribachi, a photographer snapped a shot of Marines raising a flag there, and this became the single most famous photo of the war. By March, over 300 U.S. bombers had dropped firebombs containing primitive napalm on Tokyo, Japan. The large wooden city was turned into a fireball, with temperatures reaching 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. 85,000 burned to death and 125,000 were injured. So as you can see, this combat was destroying Japan to its core. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Mid-1945. In April, 180,000 U.S. troops landed on Okinawa, which lay only 350 miles from the southernmost Japanese home island. This became the largest amphibious campaign of the Pacific War. But Okinawa is not a barren island in the middle of the Pacific. Rather, it is a heavily populated island with civilians, defended by 120,000 Japanese soldiers 
entrenched in caves and tunnels. After three months of fighting, the Americans lost 12,000 dead and 36,000 wounded, but the Japanese lost 107,000 soldiers and 100,000 civilians. So Americans began to ask themselves, would the United States have to invade the Japanese home islands in order to force their surrender? And if so, what would happen? Would they surrender or kill themselves? Or maybe try to take the Americans out with them? Well, the United States had a plan. On July 16th, the U.S. successfully tested the first atomic bomb in the New Mexican desert. They had secretly been working on the bomb since 1940 as part of the Manhattan Project. And some of the project's lead scientists were Germans who had fled the Nazis. Truman received word of the test while meeting with Stalin and Churchill at Potsdam. Churchill knew about the bomb because the British were participating in the project, while Stalin had been informed of it, thanks to his spies. On July 26, the Allies issued the Potsdam Declaration, ordering Japan to surrender or face complete and utter destruction. The Japanese reply was vague, so Truman and his advisors interpreted it as a no. The result was catastrophic. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Dropping the Bomb. On August 6th, a B-29 bomber called the Enola Gay took off from the Marianas and dropped an atomic bomb on Hiroshima, Japan. This city had 340,000 souls living in it and had previously not been firebombed. As a result of the bombing, 180,000 Japanese were killed, wounded or missing, with 70,000 dying in an instant. Stalin's reaction was, quote, War is barbaric, but using the A-bomb is super barbarity. On August 8th, the USSR then declared war on Japan. You should recall this was part of Stalin's agreement at Yalta. The USSR entered the war in spite of Japanese attempts to negotiate a back-channel surrender with them. And Truman and his advisors knew about these attempts because the U.S. had cracked the Japanese radio codes. Despite this, there was no formal Japanese surrender. So on August 9th, the United States dropped a more powerful atomic bomb on Nagasaki, a city of 250,000 souls. 80,000 were killed or went missing. We now know that Japanese leaders had been discussing the possibility of surrendering before the second bomb was dropped. But some Japanese military leaders opposed surrender, even after the second bomb. Then, the emperor stepped in and told the Japanese war council to accept surrender on the condition that he be allowed to maintain his throne. Thus, on August 11th, the Allies agreed that the emperor could stay so long as he served under Allied Supreme Commander, General Douglas MacArthur. At this point, Japanese leaders tried to stage a coup to stop the surrender, but failed. The Japanese finally surrendered on August 14th in a ceremony aboard a U.S. battleship. Thus, the 14th was declared VJ Day. Please advance to the next slide entitled, A-Bomb Controversies. There are many controversies surrounding the use of the atomic bomb in the Second World War. Those who say that we should have dropped the atomic bombs believed that the human reaction to the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, the Bataan Death March, and the fanatical Japanese fighting necessitated the action. Second, 
Americans believe that the Japanese willingness to fight to the bitter end in the middle of the nowhere Pacific suggested that they would fight to the last man on the Japanese home islands. So many American policymakers wondered how many American lives would be lost in the invasion of Japan, with some people claiming that it could be as high as 500,000, though really, they estimated around 46,000. And these analysts also believed that millions of Japanese would die in the process. Those who say that we should not have dropped the bomb say that we could have waited for Soviet help, and others contend that Japan was actually finished after Okinawa had we just waited it out. Others say that the first bomb was justified, but the second was not. Some scholars also believe that the second bomb was dropped in order to intimidate the Soviets and not just defeat the Japanese. So as you can see, this is a hotly debated topic. In our modern era, most scholars agree that Truman's main motive was to end the war as quickly as possible and save as many American lives as possible, since he was the president of this country. Most scholars also agree that the decision to drop both bombs was intended to have diplomatic possibilities. Where do I stand on the subject? The first bomb was justified, but the second was morally questionable. But I'll leave you to decide for yourself. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Post-War Settlement. At the Potsdam Conference, the Allies agreed to the occupation of Germany, as well as the, quote, orderly and humane expulsion of Germans from much of Eastern and Central Europe outside of Germany proper, and this resulted in massive population transfers, as many countries had realized that the presence of German minorities in their borders could create a future conflict. In addition, the conference set three major policies for Germany's future rule, democratization, denazification, and demilitarization, though those were questionably implemented. Next, Germany's borders were fixed, so that much of its territory in East Prussia were transferred to Poland, and it lost other territory as well. In addition, this conference sold out Poland and Eastern Europe, as the Allies pretty much guaranteed Soviet control over those regions. Finally, Germany and her allies would be forced to pay reparations, though not in an excessive amount as in the previous war's conclusion. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Consequences. The Second World War is the costliest conflict in human history. Britain lost 300,000 military dead and about 60,600 civilians. Japan lost 2 million military dead and over 650,000 civilians. Germany lost 3.5 million military dead and 1.6 million civilians. The Poles lost 123,000 military dead, but 6 million civilians because of the Holocaust. The Chinese suffered 2 million military dead and 7.75 million civilian casualties. The Soviet Union lost 10 million military dead and 17 million civilians. The United States, by contrast, lost 405,000 military dead and 6 civilian dead in the mainland 48 states because a Japanese firebomb that had flown across the Pacific on a balloon had landed in the Oregon woods and was accidentally set off by a child. Another consequence was the massive worldwide destruction. Of all the major participants, only the United States remained largely unscathed, 
and the Americans were the only participants whose standard of living actually went up during the conflict. By contrast, Europe and Japan's economy and society were wrecked and would take decades to rebuild. In addition, Germany and Japan were occupied by the Allies, and the Eastern Europe was occupied by the Soviets. During the peace, millions of people were forcibly removed from their home countries based on their ethnic or linguistic heritage and massive population transfers. Furthermore, race and gender issues in the United States were complicated by the war and would lead to the civil rights movements and other protest movements. Please go to the last slide entitled, Consequences. After the conclusion of the Second World War, the Grand Alliance quickly broke down and devolved into a cold war between the U.S. and the USSR, which lasted until 1991. The war also led to the ascendancy of Mao Zedong and the Communists in China. There were also substantial challenges to imperialism and colonialism, which led men like Ho Chi Minh to begin wars of independence in places like Vietnam and French Indochina, while Mahatma Gandhi used peaceful protests to overturn British rule in India. Thus, we see the slow process of decolonization that will sweep the globe. Well, that is all I have for you for today. I hope you are staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.